G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Okay. Yeah. You speak okay? Yes. Yeah, so what's going on for you? Very good things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you need to come and get food because of what's going on? Yeah, with the... because I used to work in the hospitality area. So unfortunately, all the restaurants and cafes are closed at the moment. So that's the reason I come here to pick up the food. It's free food, so it's good for us. Do you come every Sunday? Every 15 days. Every 15 days? Yeah. Okay. And how did you find out about it? Uh, Facebook. Ah, cool. Yeah. My friends put on Facebook and I follow them. And they say, okay, yeah, I see. They gave me the address and I came 15 days ago. I came and I started to come. Yeah. So, how long has this been affecting you that you need food? Yes, yes, I need food because. Okay, I have money. I try to save money for this situation because of the situation. But this is a really great uh, help for us, for uh, almost for international students. So, it's really good. Where are you from? Colombia. Colombia. Yes. Yeah. How long have you been here? Two years. Two years. Yes. Okay. And so you've been uh, working in hospitality that yes. length of time. Since I arrived here, I used to work in hospitality. But not at the same place. So you didn't get JobKeeper. No, in the same place. Ah, different yeah. places. Yeah. 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 Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's the voice of an overseas student I spoke to lining up for food before the second COVID lockdown in Melbourne. We catch up with what is happening for temporary visa holders during COVID and finish with a word on a move to increase knowledge of worker-owned cooperatives from Earth Worker Education. But first, a little workers' news. A series of investigations carried out by the independent news source michaelwest.com has uncovered wage theft at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal of casual staff amounting to thousands of dollars a year. AAT staff hired through Labour Hire Company Launch Recruitment Proprietary Limited have only been receiving a 20% loading, not the 25% casual loading they are legally owed. The AAT has engaged approximately 551 individuals through labour hire arrangements since 2016. It is unclear how many of these still work there, but the AAT employs a total of 742 employees, suggestive that the Administrative Appeals Tribunal is heavily reliant on casualised labour. Further investigation of the use of labour hire in the Australian Public Service, federally, has revealed the extent of privatisation by stealth and the undermining of the fabric of our governmental system. It's been assumed by critics of privatisation that outsourcing in the public service is mostly in call centres, technology or consulting roles. It is clear through the publicly visible listings on the website of major labour hire providers that the use of labour hire arrangements is present even in sectors of the APS that might be considered sensitive. 
data research, policy, freedom of information officer and even commercial procurement roles are all being filled by labour hire schemes. These include positions that range from graduate to senior executive level, senior roles in policy, management, biosecurity and even ministerial advice are now filled by private business. Even assistant directors and executives at many departments are now privately run. The headcount of non-IT public service roles outsourced by the government is in the thousands. This means senior public servants work in department buildings and take orders from the minister, but their real employer is actually a private business. Hiring through outsourcing isn't checked or balanced by the Public Service Act or government registers. Michaelwest.com reports bureaucrat fiefdoms have emerged instead. We have received stories of senior officers at departments hiring sexual partners through procurement, handing them a do-nothing job without the usual hiring checks. It's unsurprising that we have heard such stories given how little labour hire is tracked. This off-the-books outsourcing has been driven by Finance Minister Matthias Cormann's staffing caps, according to senior departmental sources. In an effort to keep things running with fewer staff, the public service has responded by quietly moving its workforce off the books. There is no evidence that actual de facto headcounts are lower or that money is being saved. Details have also emerged of public servants who may have been coerced into signing privatised contracts, which is a breach of the Fair Work Act under Section 343. An email between an anonymous public servant and Senior Executive Service Officer Georgina Hillier shows that some public servants have been denied promotions unless they sever their legal employment with the public service and agree to enter into privatised contracts. This particular public servant, after having been interviewed for a promotion, was told by Mrs Hillier they were unsuccessful. One month later, the public servant was offered the same promotion and accepted the offer. Only then were they advised by Miss Hillier that the promotion was an agency position, the meaning of which was not explained. The public servant was then told that among the formalities required, they would have to resign from their existing public service contract. The employee was then sent a form organised by the AAT's Human Resources Department to sign and accept the Labour Higher Employment Placement. The Public Service Act's Code of Conduct does not apply to labour hire employees. They do not have a statutory obligation to behave honestly, diligently, avoid conflicts of interest, avoid improper use inside information. While the Public Service Code of Conduct is often written into labour hire contracts, contractual arrangements are fundamentally different from the legal consequences of the Public Service Act. If a labour hire employee commits an egregious breach of the Public Service Act, there will be no formal record made against that person's name. They will not be subject to inquiry or investigation. Rather, they will simply be dismissed. 
Section 6 of the Public Service Act explicitly requests that all persons engaged on behalf of the Commonwealth as employees to perform functions in a department or executive agency must be engaged under this Act or under the authority of another Act. If we accept that labour hire employees fall within this description, then they are not being engaged under the Act, as the Public Service Act makes no provision for labour hire arrangements, neither do they fit within the legal loophole of being engaged as independent contractors directly within the department. It may be the case that Section 6 of the Public Service Act means that labour hire, as practised by the Commonwealth, is illegal. You are listening to Stick Together, workers' stories, union news, social justice issues. At a recent forum put on by Stand Against Racism entitled COVID, the racialized exploitation of migrant and gig workers, Matt Kunkel from the Migrant Workers Centre gave an insight into what has been happening to temporary visa holders during COVID and what needs to be done in a fairer Australia in the future. I want to start by painting a bit of a picture, and that picture is that without migrant workers, Australia as a country just doesn't work. And despite this, we've seen the government's response to this pandemic be a series of exclusionary and racist approaches that are pushing migrant workers to the brink of destitution. 10% of the total workforce in this country is made up of temporary migrant workers, and we saw that uh, in sharp relief last last year when the Bradbury Industrial Plant blew up, uh, injuring a number of workers there. Um, but we also see them in, you know, physically demanding hot, cold, uh, physically demanding work on farms through the Working Holiday Program, um, in hot and cold climates, um, seeing victimisation and, and also high levels of sexual harassment and assault. Um, and also increasingly, already prevalent before the pandemic, but large clusters uh, and large groups of migrant workers within the gig economy um, with no workplace protections. While precarity is nothing new for um, workers in Australia, there's a double layer of precarity here for migrant workers who uh, are more likely not only to be in insecure work, but also have insecurity of their residency in the country, you know, facing challenges that their bosses threaten deportation or the removal of their sponsorships. And largely what underpins all of this is the visa system creates these problems and creates this precarity. What we found was that as a group of workers, temporary visa holders were already very underprepared for the shocks that came with the, the COVID pandemic. But worse than that, we saw when the pandemic hit that the federal government just abandoned these workers completely. They were actively excluded from JobKeeper and JobSeeker, and there's only been a paltry sum applied for emergency relief payments. And Indeed, there's millions of dollars earmarked, but get unspent in these emergency relief funds. While the government abandoned them, it was really the, the, it's now only the strength of the community that sees or rather stands between these migrant workers and complete destitution. But as this pandemic goes on, we're seeing the limits of mutual aid and, and this informal support networks being really tested as the economic conditions continue to deteriorate. We saw images of international students lining up 700 metres for food vouchers. We're seeing food banks with unprecedented demands. And this is only getting worse. I mean, we did a very short phone bank a couple of weeks ago in the Migrant Workers Centre. And of the roughly 220 people we spoke to, more than 60% of those had less than $1,000 um, left in their bank accounts. And while there's been some measures at a state level to try and provide emergency relief, it's just not enough. And indeed, we've also seen last week um, announcements of an eviction ban 
being extended, but we know that many migrant workers are still in precarious housing. Uh, and not only that, but they're being trapped into some pretty vast debts and deferred rents and are either being forced from their homes uh, or are being lined up by their agents who are eagerly awaiting the end of that ban to push them out. So not only are there precarious work, but there's also precarious housing. And what it means is in the middle of this pandemic, there are more than 2 million people in this country walking a tightrope without any type of social safety net. What that's meant is we're now kind of drawing into what six or five or six months in this pandemic is the situation is very dire. You know, the government tried to say, just go home. Um, and while the federal government, through its policies, have tried to starve out migrants to try and get them to go home, it hasn't worked. They are home. This is their home. And their responses are really based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of these workers' temporariness, I guess. So I guess the analogue is that as we've seen an increase in the wider population of the, the permanent casuals, so, you know, you always want to be a permanent worker, but always on this casual basis, so have we seen a corresponding increase in a growing class of workers who appear to be permanently temporary. Because many temporary visa holders have been in this country for five, eight, or even 10 years. Uh, looking for a pathway to permanency. Um, and many have families here, they've built families, they've built lives, they've built communities, but the one thing they don't have is the right to stay on a permanent basis. And despite all of the pandemic, despite everything that this year has thrown at us, there are now more temporary visa holders in this country than there were at this time last year. So the government's idea to try and push people away and to send them back uh, to their countries of origin is just not not a reality. So this is people's home now. And that's creating a really difficult situation because without the access to support, without income support, without access to a proper social net, without uh, access to proper healthcare, as people fall off their private healthcare when they lose their jobs, um, we've got a really, really large population um, who have no support, but for that, that they can um, pull together in their community. And what it, I think it means is that we need to pull the, the whole immigration system in for a, a complete rethink. Um, and we need to move away from this reliance or, or this uh, preference towards ter uh, temperiness and provide security of residency and a genuine pathway for permanency for all those people that want it. And what that will also do is it'll have the effect of providing people with, um, I guess, the confidence to engage fully with our systems and engage fully in the workplaces and, and hopefully lead um, to an end to the underreporting um, of the mistreatment of migrant workers in the workplace because so many of them don't report on the basis that they fear uh, adverse action against their current visa or indeed adverse action against further, further visa applications. The current visa system is full of quite racist hurdles and the government can just continues to constantly change the rules and making it even harder for those that wish to stay and build a community in Australia. For many, the longer you're here, the harder it is to become permanent as well as the, as the rules shift and age plays a part in the, uh, in the point system. But there are a number of like more immediate things and more immediate steps that could be taken to, to reduce the problems, which, for example, there's um, people would quite commonly know about the 40-hour fortnight restriction on international students' work rights. Well, very hard to go to work for 20 hours a week and put a roof over your head and feed yourself. Um, and when students find themselves in the impossible situation to either only work 20 hours a fortnight or indeed work more, their employers often take advantage of their situation, their precarity. They threaten deportation. They threaten um, adverse findings in the next visa. 
um, or indeed just use that as an opportunity to not pay them correctly. I mean, we'd, we don't restrict Australian students who are on old study or, or other forms of social safety net, uh, social uh, welfare payments to only work 40 hours a fortnight. This is only for people that are born overseas. Um, and it's a, it's a racist burden that should actually be over, um, overturned. The other one that I touch on is um, the requirement for working holidaymakers to go to the regions uh, and pick fruit or work on farms and do work in those sectors for 88 days. Um, and this program is basically controlled by the employer. So a working holiday maker will go into the country, they'll, uh, they'll do their work, but ultimately the employer is the one that needs to sign off or not on this, which often sees um, some pretty nasty operators um, either extract or extort payments from workers. It leads uh, to them systematically stealing wages on the, um, on the threat that if they don't put up with it, then they will um, not get their 88 days extension or even worse, um, widespread um, reports of uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault. I mean, these, these, are what, these are structural things inside our visa system in which the government could change overnight, but continues to refuse to make these amendments um, because it suits their agenda to keep a temporary and precarious class of migrant workers in the country. Um, but removing these restrictions would provide security to all workers and allow them to provide, uh, allow them to provide for their families and to play a full role in our society. Um, but ultimately, at the core of this, and we've spoken about this a, a few times tonight, um, that the racism is still the single biggest barrier to these changes. And indeed, the pervasive thing we hear is that we, we hear about migrants being a threat to Aussie jobs um, or local jobs, for whatever those, those terms actually mean. Um, but it's just a divisive myth. Um, the truth is that increasing temporary migration or increasing migration in general leads to increased employment opportunities for all workers, no matter where you're from. Um, but, you know, we've seen, and, and many would be familiar with it, but racism is a highly, it's, a, it's highly weaponized by employers and their friends in parliaments um, who seek to divide workers along artificial lines. And really the only response available to us is for all workers from them all across the world to come together in our workplaces, uh, in union, and demand that workers are treated equally no matter where they're from, no matter what their religion is, no matter where they're from or what their visa is. Um, but what that will require is um, Australian-born workers to realise that their struggle um, is tied to that of migrant, of migrant workers uh, and that we as union members and, and activists in our workplaces need to raise and, and ventilate those issues of, of visa classes uh, and changes to the migration system um, so that we can start to build a fairer, a fairer country and a fairer migration system. But... Um, that's the only way this is going to happen is by working together now in our workplace. You are listening to Stick Together, workers' stories, union news, social justice issues. Many people are concerned about the future of work coming out of COVID. Catherine Cunningham from Earthworker Education tells us about an upcoming course aiming to make people ready for a possible future running worker cooperatives. Starting a worker cooperative in Australia is a daunting idea because we don't really know what they look like and we don't really know what it looks like to be inside one. And we decided that at Earthworker we wanted to build education that was pre-accredited. It's actually quite focused on the soft skills, the human skills of making a cooperative real. It's also about so some definitely some nitty-gritty business details in there. We're working uh, with 
Ellie from Redgum, who is an amazing founder of the Redgum process as a worker on cooperative claimants. They they're doing some great things. And and not only kind of created something from nothing, but then continued to grow as they once they were well birthed and, and out in the world. Hopefully we've got to a place where we can recognise time to build a different system. We we really have to come to terms with the fact that corporations can't care. It's not actually possible for a corporation to care. Their legal structure defines their entire purpose as profit driven. So even if they say they care in their branding, it's actually it's it's not their point, it's not their purpose of being. Whereas a cooperative, it has in its bone structure the capacity to care. Yeah. So to me, every single one of the caring industry realms of childcare, aged care, because they were living inside worker-owned cooperatives, like this cooperative life up in Sydney that delivers aged care inside the home, they're worker-owned cooperatives in Sydney, and they're doing amazing things. But we haven't enabled our communities in in, um, in Australia to learn how to build worker-owned cooperatives. And so we felt this is really important stuff, because you can imagine um, the aged care, even stuff that the, um, the councils have been delivering for such a long time, who are being told that they need to kind of step away from that industry and hand it over to, to private interests. They know that's not going to be good for their clients. They know that's not going to be good for people and their communities if that work is handed over to, to private concerns. Whereas if each of those groups of council, own, uh, council workers were helped to organise themselves into worker-owned cooperatives and they could be delivering the care that they want to deliver because they're in charge of their work. <laughs> and all of a sudden... Business becomes the tool of humans, not humans the commodity of business. So I, hopefully what we've learned in this COVID journey is that it is our system that we can change it. We, we the people, are the ones who get to change this. We don't have to wait for government. We don't have to. We certainly don't bother waiting for corporate. They're not going to change this for us. We need to change it. And I think it's important to recognise we aren't well-trained to recognise how empowered we can be. Most of us, I mean, straight up, we've been told to sit on the mat since kindergarten. <laughs> we can't do what we're told. And often in employment, we tend to find it's the easier that way. But I think I think most people can learn how to make those decisions for themselves, how to enjoy thinking, how to enjoy learning, how to step across into the complexity of this thing and realise it's not actually complicated. It's just complex and we're capable of complex thinking. And the intention in a cooperative is is for every one of us to be living the best life we could be living and that we can manage that process and we don't have to hand over our soul to another organisation to, um, to do the work we love. So, I mean, to me, there's, there's all sorts of industries that would would be really amazing to see more and more worker-owned cooperatives step up into those places. And when we think about what corporations do and the extraction of labour, yeah, the extractive power capital and how it looks like it's in charge, we're in actual fact, oh, there's a lot of people in charge. <laughs> and there's a lot of humans here because we're doing it differently. Earthworker Energy Manufacturing down in Morwell is one of the few um, manufacturing worker cooperatives. And I think if we're learning anything at the moment, we're realising mm, we handed over all of our manufacturing and perhaps that wasn't very wise. But the noise often made about manufacturing in this country is, oh, the wages are too high to manufacture here. 
Well, in actual fact, what that translates is to the extractive nature of corporations who would like to make a whole bunch of profit. That's actually where the fat is. <laughs> and if you got rid of all that, <laughs> then maybe the manufacturing industries, if the worker owned it, it would find that it's quite possible to do manufacturing in this country with staying inside the wages um, and people what they're, what they're meant to be paid. Um, and I mean, one of the things we're doing here in this education is just to, to teach the core basic skills of business. In Australia, you need five people as a minimum to start a cooperative. And we feel it's really important that all five people have a fairly solid understanding of what their business is, how their business works. And if you start from that intention and everyone who comes on board is, is educated to this is where we're at, this is, um, we're keeping good records, we're keeping transparent, this is what our money looks like, we, where everyone stays in relationship with that, then the ownership. I mean, essentially, the difference between the corporation and the worker-owner cooperative is is what you do with the profit and, and how important the cooperatives, we call it surplus. Often the, the first year or two, three years of, this, of the cooperative, all surplus goes straight back in. We often just plow it straight back in and keep building. And then we get to a stage where we realise, actually, we're ready now to start paying out the surplus to the people who've built this. Whereas in the corporation, the profit is about extracting as much as you can from the work of other to make money for to the top end of it all. But this is our pilot. Yep. It's our very first one, the Jesuit, and we're very excited. We're so grateful for the Jesuit in um, Community College in Collingwood for supporting us like this. And so we've got 10 spots available in this current um, iteration. Once these people have been through this first uh, expression of it, probably the very first thing next year, we'll be delivering it in all sorts of different environments. So, um, and, and that includes being available for people to invite us in. So if you've got a group of people who would like to do the work, um, you've got five, ten people who go, yeah, I really want to build this. Or, I mean, you know, a group of employees right now who can see the writing on the wall and who'd like to, you know, build something separate, then, yeah, bring us in, call us in. We've got the, we've got the skills. We are delivering online. Um, we're going to be delivering via Zoom. Definitely look forward to the day I get to deliver it face to face. But um, but we can deliver it online. But we do deliver it in live stream. You do need to be eligible to do this pilot with the Jesuits Community College because they are it's a pre-accredited training and has ACFI funding. Um, email us direct on earthworkereducation at gmail. Um, or they can access the Jesuits as well. On our Facebook page, we've got the flyer, and that's got the Jesuits Community College phone number and courses at jss.org.au is the email. That's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with our program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or iTunes. And you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. We would love to hear any of your workers' stories. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. And until next time, stick together and keep safe.